the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere will come to order. We all, transnational crime, civilian security, democracy, human rights, and global women's issues. We have the longest name. We gotta come up with an acronym. Anyway, uh, the title of the hearing is Illicit Mining and the Threats to Our National Security and, and Threat to Human Rights. I wanna thank the ranking member. Uh, our offices collaborate on a number of issues, in fact, on a lot of issues. Uh, and, um, and, uh, but in, in particular, in, in regards to this hearing, they've been great in, in terms of securing the panel of witnesses and so forth. I also wanna acknowledge the investigative reporting of the Miami Herald, which signed light on this issue last year, and in particular, how it related to how illegally mined gold was uh, being transacted uh, out of South Florida. Last year, I had the chance to visit the Summit of the Americas in, in Peru, and I visited our embassy staff, which briefed me and, and my staff that traveled with me on the environmental and the ecological impacts of illegal mining in Peru and on the ongoing efforts uh, to fight these activities, which are associated with crime. And I was really impressed with their work. I was also shocked to see the scale of this activity that's ongoing in so many places, not just Peru. Um, illicit mining is a very lucrative business. In fact, at times, it's, it's far more lucrative than drug trafficking. So during this hearing, we're gonna hear directly from experts in our government about the negative impacts of illegal mining and about all the criminal activities that surround it, such as the trafficking of firearms and explosives, human smuggling and trafficking, and, and of course, it's also uh, very valuable for money laundering. Um, mining is an important income-generating industry for many countries in the Western Hemisphere. In, in 2016, Latin America produced 20.5% of global gold output and supplied 58% of U.S. gold imports. According uh, to these sources, like the 2016 Minerals Yearbook, uh, the production leads to water contamination, it leads to uh, uh, mercury and cyanide releases, deforestation, ecosystem damage. That actually is, is uh, according to a, a report uh, from, called the Wires Act in 2017. And this mining has also been linked in addition to those environmental damage, to that environmental damage, it's been linked to human rights abuses, and that includes a displacement of the local populations from the areas being mined. It's led to human trafficking and forced labor and even prostitution. Illegal gold mining's effects are not limited to the communities outside of the United States. They are, in fact, a direct threat to our interests. Criminal organizations that traffic in illicit gold, for example, operate right here in the United States. And unfortunately, uh, my home community and my home state of Florida, South Florida, has become a major entry point for this activity. It's refined, it's made into jewelry, or placed into our electronics, and then it's sold to US consumers, much of it, if not all of it, untraceable. Criminal organizations are using these anonymous shell companies to help launder funds that are associated with illicit mined gold into the US. The, the Miami Herald reported last year that in Latin America, criminals see mining and trading precious metals as a lucrative growth business carefully hidden from U.S. consumers who flaunt gold around their necks and fingers but have no idea where it comes from or who gets hurt. That's end quote. Illegal mining operates outside the law and because it does, international conventions and mining industry guidelines, things that control toxic mining processes, inputs like cyanide and mercury are, are ineffective. Law enforcement presence in these areas is often weak too and a lot of that's due to corruption but also due to state resource constraints and the remoteness of these mining sites. And deforestation is directly linked to illicit gold mining. It's particularly extensive in the Amazon region and has contributed to widespread damage within tropical rainforests. So I'm focusing here today on Latin America in particular, given its proximity to our borders and its direct threat to our security and our interests. Specifically, countries like Venezuela, Peru, and Colombia continue to have major problems with illicit mining activity. 
This remains a major key factor of instability as you have criminal networks violating international standards and human rights within their borders. In 2016, the government of Peru declared a temporary state of emergency on widespread mercury poisoning in, in Madre de Dios, an area in which four or five adults tested positive for high levels of mercury. In 2017, Colombia's Comptroller General reported that 80% of all mining activity in Colombia was illicit. Experts estimate that these groups may annually earn as much as $2.4 billion from illegal mining, three times the value of Colombia's cocaine production. Our State Department describes illegal gold mining in Latin America as, quote, a direct threat to U.S. national security and to the integrity of the U.S. and international financial system, end quote. Now, I want to commend the government of Peru, who at the beginning of this year began a comprehensive plan against illegal mining uh, in, in that region I just mentioned earlier, in Madre de Dios. In September of 2019, Colombian President Ivan Duque convened a regional group of leaders to coordinate action to prevent further Amazon rainforest destruction. And various other countries have responded by creating policies or laws controlling mining, including a permanent ban, which is now in place in El Salvador. In March of 2019, the Treasury Department imposed sanctions on Venezuela's state-run gold mining company, Minervan, for engaging in illicit transactions that have supported the illegitimate regime of Nicolas Maduro. But the willing countries that are trying to help us need to be equipped with the tools needed to combat this illicit activity. Mining firms and countries can apply guidelines to reduce human rights abuses, environmental degradation, and other negative impacts. There is a major human toll if we do not get control of this problem, and I look forward to hearing your responses to questions. What I really want to focus on today is how do we mitigate the impact that illegal gold mining has on the health and human rights of indigenous groups residing in these regions? How has the presence of sex trafficking in and around mines driven the recent sharp rise in HIV AIDS cases and deaths in the region? Uh, what can the U.S. do to play a leading role in countering illegal mining in our hemisphere and beyond? Uh, it's my hope that we can shed some light on, on this important issue and these important questions, and, and I want to now recognize my colleague, the ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, let me thank uh, Chairman Rubio um, for his leadership on this and for calling this hearing, and I want to thank all of our witnesses for, for being here today as we try to deal with this issue. The chairman mentioned the article that appeared in the Miami Herald um, t entitled Dirty Gold, Clean Cash. Uh, I would ask unanimous consent that that article could be made part of our record. Uh, I would also ask consent that the article in regards to organized crime controls gold exploitation in Venezuela be made part of this record. And also ask consent that the statement from Global Witness uh, be made part of our record. They all underscore the point the chairman made that illicit mining fuels corruption, conflict, human rights abuses, and threatens the United States' national security. We could give many examples. I'll just give one global example of this in Burma. The Burma uh, jade trade is well known as being the financial source for the Burmese military and their activities, in which recently we've seen it used in regards to the Rohingya crisis so that the Burmese gems are now known as genocide gems. And I want to compliment Cartier and Tiffany for not purchasing jade uh, that's sourced from Burma. In Latin America, 20, over 20% 20 of the world's gold supply uh, it comes from, from, from Latin America. 58% of U.S. gold imports come from that country. And the challenge is it's virtually impossible for us to be able to identify with certainty the source. 
as to where that gold is coming from. So it could very well be supporting this illicit mining activities. The State Department, as the chairman stated, and I'm going to repeat exactly what he said, the quote, because it's kind of chilling. It's uh, the uh, illicit uh, gold uh, mining is a direct threat on U.S. national security and the integrity of the United States and international financial systems. So we're at risk. There's also a great deal of evidence that in our hemisphere that we're going from the narco-trafficking to illegal mining. And what is really frightening is that those uh, criminal elements are finding it more profitable in the mining than they did in the narcotics. Uh, there's uh, estimates that in the Andes, uh, $2.4 billion a year is, is earned in illicit mining, which is three times more than they were able to earn in the cocaine trafficking. So what do we do about this? I mean, I think that's the challenge. We know we have a problem. What do we do about it? Which should start with U.S. leadership. And quite frankly, Mr. Chairman, I think there's a very easy way for us to start. There is an international coalition known as the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, EITI, which is, I would say, suggests a minimal effort to make sure that we have transparency because we know in many cases these resources are in countries that are relatively poor even though they're resource rich. And the resource becomes a resource curse because it's used to fund corruption rather than the wealth of the country. The EITI is an effort to try to get at that by adding transparency. And the United States should be a leader. Instead, uh, President Trump has removed the United States from an implementing country. We need to reverse that. That was a mistake. It's an easy one, I think, for, for us uh, to show our leadership in regards to dealing with transparency on extractive industries. Fighting corruption at the highest levels of government and industry should be a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy because it impacts our national security. It's who we are as a nation. Two pieces of legislation I authored, Section 1504 of the Dodd-Frank Act and the Global Magnitsky Act, work hand-in-hand -hand to fight exactly that type of corruption that leads to the proliferation of illicit economic sectors all over the world. I want to talk a moment about Section 1504, also known as the Cardin-Luger anti-corruption provisions, requiring foreign and domestic oil and mining companies listed on the U.S. stock exchanges to disclose their payments to governments, including tax payments. The late Senator Luger was a great champion of 1504, which essentially gives us the information and civil societies the evidence they need to hold leaders accountable for what's happening to their mineral wealth. That part of Dodd-Frank instructed the Securities and Exchange Commission to write implementing, uh, implementing rules for the law. Well, it took them many years to get it done. They finally got it done. They issued the rules, about, and then uh, the Trump administration came into power, and one of the first things that they supported uh, was a Congressional Review Act that removed that regulation from taking effect. And unfortunately, my Republican colleagues supported that. Now, I remember the debate uh, during that uh, discussion. They felt the rule was overly broad and that we would have a new rule. Well, it's two years later, three years later now, and we're still waiting for that rule. So we have a law. It's the law of the land. We still don't have the implementing regulations issued by the SEC. But thankfully, EU, Norway, and Canada all modeled their disclosure laws under Section 1504. And because of these efforts, we've seen companies like Exxon exposed for their bad faith dealings with corrupt government actors in the extractive industry. So because we have now stock exchanges that require it, 
Uh, we are moving in that direction. It was the U.S. leadership that provoked that activity, but the United States is now behind. Major oil companies such as Shell, BP, Total Energy, and BHP uh, also raised capital on U.S. stock exchanges, support the global standard now enforced in 30 countries, and have written to the SEC to adopt similar rules. I hope we can get this done. We need a strong rule in the spirit of, of, of 1504 uh, that will uh, help, and I would hope we would have support on both sides of the aisle to get this done. The Global Magnitsky Act also establishes the U.S. government to go after and enforce sanctions against corrupt actors. I encourage the administration to use it as a tool to create greater accountability in the illicit mining sector. So I think we have some steps that we've already taken. Chairman mentioned some countries that have stepped forward and doing some positive things. We know we have a problem. Let's work together to solve this problem and get the United States in the leadership in dealing with the extractive industry so that the resources of a nation can truly be a blessing rather than a curse. I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you. Let me introduce the panel here quickly. Ms. Carrie Filippetti is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs. Mr. Richard Glenn is the Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs at the State Department. Mr. Jeffrey Haney is the Acting Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Bureau for Economic Growth, Education, and Environment at the, at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Mr. Patrick Lechleitner is the Assistant Director for International Operations and Homeland Security Investigations at U.S. Immigration and Custom Enforcement. And Ms. Regina Thompson is the Deputy Assistant Director at the Criminal Investigation Division of the FBI. We want to thank all of you for being here. Um, we'll start from right to left with you, Ms. Filippetti. Thank you. Thank you, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin. We greatly appreciate the opportunity to appear before you today to share the concerns of the State Department regarding illicit mining. While my colleagues are going to describe the impact of this practice on the region, today I'm going to focus on Venezuela, where illicit mining perpetuates a horrific cycle of, as you said, corruption, violence, human rights abuses, disease, and ecological devastation. As we know, Venezuela is a land blessed with immeasurable resources. We often speak about Venezuelan oil, but their resources extend far beyond that. Venezuela holds vast deposits of gold, precious minerals, and resources like coltan, which is used in manufacturing electronics. In fact, Venezuela's mining arc, or Arco Monero as it is called, comprises 12% of Venezuela's entire landmass, making it larger than Cuba, Portugal, or Panama. Security is perhaps one of the most significant concerns when it comes to illicit mining, which we estimate makes up approximately 91% of all mining coming out of Venezuela. Prison gangs known as Pranes, Colectivos, and ELN members and FARC dissidents are all active in the mining arc. In many places, these individuals maintain power over the mines themselves, over transit routes, or over the resources required to successfully mine, including mercury. This, along with their use of force, gives these gangs broad power over the communities living near the mines, in many cases making them dependent on the violent whims of these illegal groups for food, medicine, and a livelihood. This leads to another threat, how illicit mining benefits the Maduro regime. The regime is determined to retain power, and it needs money to do so. This is a large reason why we have implemented sanctions to cut off these sources of financial income and prevent the oil industry, for example, from being exploited for patronage. But since the regime lacks both the will and the capacity to stop people from exploiting mines, it facilitates its allies' access to mining revenue and in so doing reinforces the loyalty of those allies. And there are many innocents who are victims of this violent, corrupt network. 
There are, of course, the indigenous communities, as you've both mentioned, who are disproportionately affected by illicit mining thanks to their high populations in the heavily mined states of Zulia, Amazonas, and Bolivar. There are also those victims who are lured to the mines out of desperation. Many are subsequently exploited in forced labor or sex trafficking, including children, compelled through violence and fear by the groups running the mines. In addition, trafficking in persons and sexual exploitation at mining camps has created significant spikes in HIV and AIDS. A horrifying example is that of Leocer Jose Lugo, a former member of the Venezuelan military, who was drawn to a mine in Bolivar for work. When the gang he was working for discovered that he had previously worked for the armed forces, the 19-year-old was tortured and left for dead. They cut out his tongue and they made him swallow it. And when that wasn't enough, they amputated his hands and they gouged out his eyes. And Leocer Jose Lugo is not the only example. Bolivar State is tragically the site of countless mass graves for an unknown number of victims, leaving National Assembly Deputy Angel Medina noting just last week that there have been over 40 massacres in the state of Bolivar alone since 2016. But it is not just the violence that is a threat to the population. Among the other health risks are mercury poisoning and mosquito-borne diseases, particularly malaria. And as a reminder, in 1961, Venezuela was the first country in Latin America to have eradicated malaria in the majority of its territory. Now, largely due to the collapsed public health system, the Maduro regime's incompetence, and the illicit mining industry, the WHA reported that Venezuela had the fourth highest malaria rate in the entire world between January and October of this year. And with respect to mercury, a powerful neurotoxin used in the extraction of gold, a test performed in mining communities recently showed that over 90% of people working in the mines in Bolivar had unsafe concentrations of mercury in their urine, with effects also reaching 87% of women and 68% of children. Now this poisoned water harms both humans and the earth, as does the immeasurable amount of drilling and deforestation these practices require. They have wrought vast ecological damage to the vital Amazonian landscape, including portions of it that were supposedly protected, turning this beautiful, ecologically significant landscape into the latest victim of the Maduro regime. The crisis in Venezuela has led to the flight of over 4.6 million refugees, the collapse of a once prosperous country's educational, economic, industrial, and healthcare systems, and the deprivation of fundamental freedoms from tens of millions. Illicit mining is a key part of this story and one that needs to be better told. This is why we deeply appreciate the opportunity to brief on this subject this morning. It's also why we have focused on imposing costs for engaging in the mining sector, both for the Maduro regime and for those foreign countries like Russia, China, and Turkey, whose partnerships on illicit mining have enabled this horrific human and ecological devastation. It is why in March of this year, the Treasury Department announced sanctions designations against the Venezuelan state-owned gold industry. And it is why we stand in support of the National Assembly, the only remaining democratic institution in Venezuela which has issued resolutions calling out the abuses of the mining industry and declaring contacts, contracts with the industry null and void. Of course, our key focus is in uprooting the cause, the Maduro regime. A swift political transition is the single best and most effective way to reduce these and other abuses. And this remains the focus of the Department of State in our efforts on Venezuela. Thank you very much for the opportunity to bring awareness of this important issue. I look forward to the questions. Thank you, Mr. Glenn. Chairman Rubio, uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, good morning. And thank you for your interest in this uh, vital uh, issue. Uh, I'm here this morning to speak to you about our, our efforts at the State Department's uh, Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Affairs uh, to combat illicit mining in, in the Western Hemisphere. 
it, it is a global concern uh, that, that in our hemisphere is most prevalent in Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, Ecuador, uh, Guyana, Mexico, Nicaragua, Peru, Suriname, and Venezuela. It's a good number of countries. Uh, illegal mining fuels organized crime, narco-trafficking, corruption, trafficking in persons, violence, uh, and environmental destruction. Transnational criminal organizations, which I will refer to as TCOs, threaten the national security and prosperity of the United States by using gold, mostly mined illegally in remote areas in South America, to launder illicit profits through the U.S. financial system. Uh, for the purposes of this hearing, I will focus most of my uh, words on Peru, uh, since it is the largest producer of gold in Latin America and the sixth largest in the world. Uh, Mr. Shame, Chairman, you and I were in Peru at the same time uh, last year uh, and got a brief uh, from our embassy staff on the depth of destruction in the Amazon jungle uh, due to illegal mining. Uh, the deforestation associated with illegal mining destroyed uh, or destroys rainforest or has destroyed rainforest equivalent to the size uh, of seven times uh, of, the, of, the, of the city of Miami in just the region of Madre de Dios. Uh, I brought in some pictures here uh, that, uh, that we will submit them uh, for the record. Uh, I think seeing such images helps us to better understand the enormity uh, of the challenge that we face. Uh, as our neighbors in the hemisphere cracked down on the narcotics industry, uh, TCOs uh, began to move into the underregulated gold mining sector as it offers uh, lucrative incentives. Experts believe that a third of the gold leaving Peru is illegally mined. In 2019, Peru's Financial Intelligence Unit found that illegal gold mining emerged as the largest source of money laundering uh, at more than double the amount of narcotics. Once gold is mined, it is difficult to trace its origin. Criminals use cash or wire transfers to pay for gold, uh, which makes transactions uh, essentially anonymous. Lax registration procedures or falsified records allow criminal groups to set up companies to buy gold, use to launder funds, and enter the legitimate supply chain. Uh, reporting, uh, let's see, uh, like most criminals, uh, illegal mining thrives where there is little state presence. Major drug production locales in the hemisphere overlap with illegal gold mining areas. Uh, the routes used to smuggle drugs and precursor chemicals are also used to smuggle gold, humans, uh, supplies, and equipment uh, used for illegal mining. In addition to financing the activities and controlling the labor, uh, TCOs also buy illegal gold and launder their money through gold consolidators. Uh, defunct mines, semi-refiners, and shell companies. To combat this threat, the State Department helps partner nations disrupt criminal networks responsible for illegal mining and its associated crimes. We reinforce transparent and traceable supply uh, chains uh, for gold and eliminate the use of mercury. Uh, we signed or recently signed an MOU with Peru uh, just two years ago in 2017 to combat illegal gold mining and its deleterious effects on the rule of law, human rights, and the environment. Since the MOU was signed, we funded trainings for prosecutors to build complex environmental cases and to set up a forensic laboratory with advanced technology to detect mercury uh, and map crime scenes. Our assistance is helping the government of Peru take action. In February of this year, they launched Operation Mercury to evict illegal miners from Madre de Dios. Uh, the successful operation has led to the subsequent interdictions uh, around the country as well as 92 uh, percent reduction in rates of deforestation caused by illegal mining uh, in the Madre de Dios area. We recognize illegal mining is a threat and an effective response requires strengthening law enforcement and regulatory capacities of partner nations and improving regional coordination. We recently established a project with the Organization of American States to strengthen the national and regional systems that combat illegal mining financial structures 
and enhance regional collaboration. Working with financial intelligence units and customs and immigration authorities, the project will increase investigations and convictions of crimes related to illegal mining. While we have made progress, stronger action is needed to stop the trafficking of illegal gold through U.S. ports of entry and to target bad actors at home and abroad. We must continue to advance our shared interests through a coordinated interagency approach with an eye toward developing greater cross-border collaboration. Our hemispheric collaboration is essential to disrupting these criminal networks, reducing the demand for human trafficking and preventing illegally mined gold from entering the U.S. and international markets. Uh, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, thank you again for the opportunity to appear before you today. Uh, I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Haney. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, thank you for the opportunity to testify about the important role that the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, plays in addressing illegal and unregulated mining. Illegal and unregulated mining undermines U.S. interests around the globe, contributes to armed conflicts and instability, provides funding to criminal networks, threatens our shared environmental goals, and menaces indigenous people. The linkages between mineral wealth and development are complex and dynamic. Whether a country harnesses its mineral wealth for inclusive economic growth or its mineral wealth leads to a downward spiral of corruption and violent conflict depends largely on a supportive policy framework and its enforcement, combined with citizen responsive governance, including transparency and accountability. Within the mineral sector, artisanal and small-scale mining, ASM, is uniquely vulnerable to exploitation by corrupt officials, elites, and criminal groups. At least 40 million people in developing countries, most of them poor, work in the ASM sector, which is mostly informal in nature. Women and children are especially vulnerable to labor and sexual exploitation on illegal mining sites, especially in conflict and post-conflict environments. Illegal ASM has helped finance prolonged and deadly conflicts throughout Sub-Saharan Africa. In the Sahel, armed groups are increasingly seizing control of artisanal and small-scale gold mining sites in Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger, which could further destabilize the region. Artisanal and small-scale mining often occurs in and around protected areas of high biodiversity, which hampers efforts to protect critical ecosystems. In Colombia and Peru, artisanal and small-scale gold mining has deforested over 140,000 hectares of tropical forest, as those photos show. Artisanal and small-scale gold mining is the largest source of mercury pollution on Earth, as at least 10 million people use mercury to mine for gold in more than 70 countries, with severe effects on human health. Unfortunately, we have no easy or quick solutions. Evidence suggests, however, that formalization of the sector is one effective step to break the link between minerals and armed conflict, mitigate environmental impacts, and minimize human rights abuses. USAID has learned through experience that addressing illegal and unregulated mining requires a coordinated whole-of-government approach and long-term investments. We cannot solve this problem alone with development assistance. USAID invests in efforts to formalize and improve the ASM sector in partnership with the national and local governments, civil society, and the private sector. Over the last five years, USAID has awarded programs with an anticipated total value of $125 million to address illegal and unregulated artisanal and small-scale mining in countries such as Afghanistan, Central African Republic, Colombia, Cote d'Ivoire, DRC, Peru, and Rwanda. On a recent trip to Colombia, USAID Administrator Mark Green commented that he was, quote, shocked to see the remnants of the illegal mining and the devastating consequences for the environment. But he was also heartened to witness firsthand the impact that USAID's programs have had 
uh, help support environmentally and socially responsible legal supply chains that, quote, bring money revenues into legal channels in a way that helps to support families and provides new revenues for the government. In Latin America, USAID's programs in Peru and Colombia directly support bilateral MOU between the United States and the aforementioned governments to counter illegal mining and related crimes. USAID recently launched a new five-year, $23.9 million program in Peru to strengthen environmental justice institutions, reduce environmental crimes, and support civil society and the media to serve as effective watchdogs. In Colombia, USAID-funded programs promote legal and responsible mineral supply chains in Antioquia and Choco. These programs have helped formalize 42 mining operations, eliminate nearly 40 tons of mercury from mining operations, and assisted in generating $110 million of legal gold sales, and rehabilitated 17,000 hectares of land affected by mining. In Africa, USAID works closely with the government of the Central African Republic to improve compliance with the Kimberley process and reduce the flow of conflict diamonds and helps to establish legal, responsible mineral supply chains for tin, tantalum, tungsten, and gold in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In 2010, the United Nations reported that almost every mine site in eastern DRC was under the control of armed groups. Since that time, USAID has supported the validation of more than 600 mine sites as conflict-free. In 2018, validated conflict-free supply chains in the DRC legally exported approximately 15,800 tons of minerals worth over $285 million. A comprehensive solution for illegal mining cannot succeed without also strengthening the governance of industrial mining. That is why USAID has invested more than $19 million in 17 countries to advance the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, a voluntary global partnership between governments, extractive industry companies, and civil society to promote the transparency and accountability and accountable management of oil, gas, and mineral resources. USAID's interest is and always will be to work with governments, civil society, and the private sector and countries on their journey to self-reliance. Part of this journey is the effective management of natural resources, including high-value high minerals. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Leitner. Good morning, Chairman Rubio and Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you for the opportunity to appear, appear before you today to discuss the illicit, illicit mining of gold and the threats this activity poses to U.S. national security, international law, and human rights. As the largest investigative agency within the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Homeland Security Investigation investigates and enforces more than 400 federal criminal statutes. HSI utilizes its broad legal authorities to investigate immigration and custom violations, including those related to import-export control, human rights abuses, narcotics, weapons and contraband smuggling, financial crime, cybercrime, human trafficking smuggling, child exploitation, IP theft, transnational gangs, immigration document and benefit fraud, and worksite enforcement. We are grateful for the continued congressional support that allows ICE HSI to maintain critical operations at home and abroad and increase our efforts to, to target and combat dangerous transnational gangs and other criminal organizations. ICE HSI International Operations has a global presence with over 500 personnel, including special agents deployed to 78 offices in 52 countries who conduct criminal investigations against TCOs, terrorists, and other criminal organizations that threaten our national security. 
HSI leverages its international footprint and partnerships to disrupt and dismantle TCOs that seek to exploit America's legitimate trade, travel, and financial systems, and enforces U.S. customs and immigration laws at and beyond our nation's borders to prevent threats from entering the United States. Today, I would like to highlight how HSI has ardently investigated illicit actors whose activities touch our borders. Investigations spearheaded by HSI have ranged from blood diamonds mined in Africa to unregulated harvesting of timber in the Amazon to wildlife trafficking in Southeast Asia. HSI, in collaboration with federal partners such as U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the U.S. Department of Treasury, the Department of State, as well as Interpol, as well as partnering with Interpol to combat uh, natural resources exploitation through the sharing of criminal intelligence and application of U.S. customs and money laundering laws. As you know, the U.S. has a long history of protecting our environment, wildlife, and natural resources through the promulgation and enforcement of statutes exemplified by the Lacey Act, the Clean Diamond Trade Act, the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act, and many others. The activities of TCOs and other illicit actors are often diversified, regardless of whether calculated or opportunistic. At its core, HSI recognizes the impetus of most criminal schemes is financial enhancement, and such, financial investigations are the cornerstone of HSI investigations. Financial irregularities are often the tip-off leading to an HSI criminal investigation. As an example, an HSI-led investigation resulted in the conviction of the Director of Operations, the Executive Sales Director for Latin America, and others from the largest American-owned precious metals purchasing and refining company for conspiracy to produce over $3 billion of criminally derived gold from Latin America, originating primarily from Peru and the Caribbean. These proceeds were gained from unlawful criminal activities, including mining, foreign bribery, smuggling, narcotics trafficking, and the entry of goods into the United States by false means and statements. They subsequently transmitted over $3 billion of wire payments from the United States to Latin America and the Caribbean to promote the delivery of additional criminally derived gold. The investigation further resulted in the indictment of four Peruvian nationals in November of 2017 who were charged in the Southern District of Florida for their alleged participation in this money laundering scheme. One of the suspects was arrested in Peru by the Peruvian police for charges of illegal gold mining and laundering more than $630 million worth of gold. The American-owned company was sentenced to forfeit $15 million to the United States, develop and maintain an effective compliance and ethics program, and also received a five-year term of probation that prohibits it from purchasing precious metals from outside the United States. HSI continues to work with the Department of State and our international and U.S. law enforcement partners to address the challenges and threats posed by these illicit activities to the United States. Thank you for the opportunity to, to appear before you today. I would be pleased to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Ms. Thompson. Good morning, Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the subcommittee. I'm pleased to appear before you to discuss the FBI's efforts to disrupt transnational organized crime TCOs, and specifically their involvement in illegal mining. The FBI has a long history of successfully combating organized crime, and as illicit activities of these actors evolve and diversify, so have our strategies to combat them. The last decade in particular has seen a boom in illegal mining operations, primarily due to financial instability 
and an increased gold demand for precious metals, sorry, global demand for precious metals. It is well known that drug trafficking is a money-making cornerstone of TCOs in the Western Hemisphere. However, criminal endeavors such as illegal mining are also substantial generators of revenue. The precious metals trade is a global industry with established value. Penetration of the industry by criminal organizations allows them to establish global networks for the sale of illegally mined metals and establish money laundering platforms. Illegal mining and the subsequent laundering of the gold allows criminal organizations to easily commingle illicitly obtained commodities with the legal market by using witting or unwitting businesses or smuggling techniques to introduce it into the domestic and global economy. TCOs also leverage the gold industry as a money laundering platform, which allows them to exchange large sum of illicitly gained cash for gold that can be easily transported, stored, and used in lieu of cash. These organizations purchase gold, much of which is illegally mined, then sell it into the legitimate market where then clean money is returned. We have seen well-known groups, including Sinaloa and FARC, also smaller clan-based groups, and the current administration in Venezuela engaged in these types of criminal activities. To effectively combat this threat, in October 2015, the FBI established the Illegal Mining Initiative. This initiative is an intelligence-led effort to disrupt TCO's involvement in this illicit trade and prosecute those involved. Through the initiative, the FBI engages with other federal agencies, international law enforcement partners in complex, multi-jurisdictional investigations that span the globe. A prime example of the initiative's success in the FBI's efforts to detect and disrupt this activity is Operation Diaz Condoras, which was initiated in January 2016 as a joint FBI and Chilean police investigation. This investigation disrupted a network responsible for importing 80 million in illicit gold. Intelligence obtained during the investigation identified a link with an ongoing OSADEF case, Operation Arch Stanton, which ultimately led to the prosecution of a multi-billion dollar money laundering scheme. A spinoff investigation targeting U.S. company <clears throat> NTR Metals was launched in conjunction with DEA Lima and HSI Miami. This investigation uncovered a conspiracy responsible for the importation of over $3.6 billion of gold with ties to illicit activities. The work of multiple U.S. federal and foreign law enforcement agencies ultimately resulted in convictions, restitution, a landmark guilty plea by the NTR Metals parent company, and the disruption of a major international gold smuggling and money laundering operation. The FBI continues to identify and target networks worldwide that are exploiting illegal mining, and we provide information to law enforcement and private sector partners related to this growing threat. The FBI has collaborated extensively with the State Department to develop and implement national and international training, most recently providing training in Panama for law enforcement and prosecutors in October of this year. TCOs will continue to pose significant threat to national and international security as they continue to evolve and diversify their activities. Disrupting these activities will require enhanced domestic and international collaboration and education in both the government and private sector arenas. This is key as it increases reporting, which in turn enhances our intelligence base and leads to more investigations and prosecutions. 
Thank you for the opportunity to appear today, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Uh, we'll start with the ranking member. Well, I want to thank all of you for, for your efforts. Um, you are involved in trying to, through enforcement, to deal with these illicit activities. Uh, and here's the challenge, and there's a lot of similarities between the illicit activities with gold, with wildlife uh, trafficking, uh, we've seen the same similar type of circumstances, or we could get to child labor products that violate international human rights in the same type of enforcement issues. Or for that matter, we have corrupt officials in extractive industries and in dealing with those activities. So yes, when you have the direct line between a company and uh, legal activities, then yes, you can go after the enforcement. It's not easy, but you, you can draw those direct lines the problem is that the reason these activities take place is that they're profitable. And they find ways to get into the supply chain, into legitimate companies who either don't know or don't care to know where the supply is coming from. So we need to help you. And I mean that sincerely. And that's why, to me, transparency in the supply chain is critically important here. And it seems to me that we could do a better job in the legal requirements of legitimate companies with their requirements to dig in more into the supply chain before they purchase their products. And that is a political hurdle we have here because obviously companies don't like to have to go through that burden. But the size of this problem, if the numbers we have are correct, we are allowing a lot of illicit gold to come into America that we're not able to stop under today's enforcement rules. So I guess my question to you is, I mentioned two examples of transparency initiatives. One, the EITI, which is a global initiative, has been around for a long time. Uh, and then I mentioned 1504, which is uh, taken, uh, is taken hold by uh, other countries enforcing their disclosure laws on uh, the stock exchanges. Wouldn't that help you if we had greater transparency and put more responsibility where the money is coming from, and that is the consumers of this country or the, the, the people who buy, believing they're buying a legitimate product, but in reality they're buying illicit gold that's been melted down into a different look and therefore it's so difficult to find. Can't we develop a better way for transparency in the supply chain? Everybody's quiet? That's a question so, for an answer. <laughs> yes. So yes, uh, sir, certainly, uh, certainly agree. A lot of times when we're engaging in training with, uh, whether it be foreign partners or in collaboration with domestic agencies or with the private sector, we speak a lot about anti-money laundering measures. And the measures can be taken, obviously, on a national level, but they can also be taken at a business level in terms of implementing these anti-money laundering measures so that we can really see the beneficial ownership information, meaning who is ultimately benefiting from the money of the sale of the illegal gold or where the payments are going. Well, so uh, you, you have a company here who's buying, let's say, gold from a company in, in our hemisphere, uh, a legitimate company, 
that's operating three companies below with illegal activities. How do you operate here in America to require that supply chain information to be known so that the company here in the United States cannot participate because they have not gotten the satisfaction that the gold being purchased here was not part of illicit activity. How do we do that? Good, I found one Sir. volunteer, yes. <laughs> Senator, uh, it can be quite difficult for gold, but I think we could use some other examples, particularly tin, tantalum, tungsten, and the success that we have had in the DRC. And establishing traceability is absolutely critical as we look to decouple the criminal activity from these local mining operations and allow the local population to profit from them. The progress to go in 2010 from almost total control of the mine sites in Eastern DRC under criminal and armed group control to today uh, down to 20% is quite remarkable. And I think that's an example of where that traceability is in place. Um, where we can see the progress. As I mentioned, that is more difficult on the gold side because gold is more easily smuggled and more difficult to establish traceable supply chains. But we very recently have done the same thing for the first time in the DRC, establishing a fully traceable, conflict-free supply chain for the export of gold to the, uh, to the U.S. through an all-U.S. company um, supply chain. And of course, 1502 of Dodd-Frank deals with, with that requirement. Uh, because let me tell you the alternative. The alternative is that Congress passes a ban on these products coming into America. Just an outright ban because we can't, with satisfaction, determine that it is safe from, from contamination from illegal sources. That could violate some of our trade agreements. That could cause diplomatic and bilateral problems, and it presents an economic challenge for America. So if we can't get this right, we will look for other ways to deal with this. And quite frankly, I don't believe we have the cooperation of the commercial entities in this country. I don't think they share enough concern about where their revenues are going they look more as to their own profitability rather than what they are contributing to. And that's why it requires us to give them guidance, that everyone has to comply with the same rules, no company's put at a disadvantage. And we need stronger national laws on this. That's why 1502 was adopted, that's why 1504 was passed, that's why we've, we've worked on these issues that provide a common requirement so that everyone's under the same standards. I mean, I can tell you, 1502 wasn't easy to pass. There was a lot of opposition to 1502. So uh, we need your help because it, I, I, I can only imagine how difficult it is for the FBI or Homeland Security to try to put together one of these cases. It's not an easy thing to do because you can't get, you can't connect all the dots under current laws. And there is virtually no way you can establish criminal responsibility at the, at the end user unless you can connect some dots on culpability. And that's the challenge today. So 
We've identified a problem. I'm not sure we've identified an answer that will be comprehensive enough. We certainly want to do everything we can at the source, working with the countries involved, good governance. You're right, get rid of Maduro, the best thing we could do for Venezuela, and so many other things come along with that, including illicit mining. We agree with that, uh, and we have to work in that regard. But I, I do think, recognize that it's the money from the consumers in this country that is fueling these operations, and we have to have a better way of identifying the source in order to stop the practice. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, let me begin with Ms. Thompson and Mr. Leitner. Um, how can we, uh, you know, we've seen numerous cases where there are private planes that are being used to transport illegal gold. How can we boost scrutiny of such flights at our nation's airports and, and encourage stronger customs enforcement in countries through which the illegal gold passes? Thank you, Chairman. Um, that's a, it's a very difficult, very difficult issue um, because of the, the way that gold is, is handled and it's virtually impossible once it's melted and combined together to trace it. It's very difficult to tell if it's illicit or illicit. Um, working with our, the best solution, one of the best solutions I believe would be working with our foreign partners to determine uh, where, this, where these, uh, this gold is being sourced and potentially where these flights are coming from, working with our partners and transnational criminal investigative units and both domestically and abroad to determine where these flights are coming from and their source countries would be a way that we could potentially attack this issue. It's not an easy issue. Uh, it's, it's very easily hid uh, and it's very easily um, obscured, uh, but only with the participation of our foreign partners, I think, can we really attack the issue to any measurable degree. Let me ask you both, maybe you guys can help us well. Just logistically, if you could walk us through how, for example, illicitly mined gold in Peru, in Venezuela, wherever, winds up in our marketplace here. What are the steps? Obviously, they, they illegally mine it, and then what happens? If you could just walk us through how it gets here. Typically, I know that there's... Well, there's two main ways that it's going to enter our markets. One is through uh, fraudulent documentation that is uh, given at the border, and the other way is the smuggling. So to take a, to take a step back, as you said, the, the gold is obviously illegally mined, and then it'll pass through a number of hands. It, sometimes it's more direct, sometimes it really is a number of hands to hide the original source of the gold. And then sometimes that involves shell companies. And then, as I said, then it's the two primary ways that it enters the U.S. But, no, but physically, how does it get? Does somebody have it on their person in a commercial flight? Do they send it FedEx? I mean, how does oh, it? Oh, okay. Sorry, sir. Um, yes, both. So, for example, if it's crossing and declared when it's coming into the country, it can have fraudulent documentation with it. That's one way the illegal gold can come in. And the second is the smuggling route, which we had talked about a little bit earlier, where it's melted down, belt buckles, jewelry, purses, things like that, and that's a way to smuggle it in. So I arrive at Miami International Airport with gold bars in my suitcase. Do, what, what are the declaration requirements when you land? If it's greater than 10,000, you need to declare it. Um, but there'd be no way to determine if those gold bars are illicit or illicit. Right, I mean, but if it's more than $10,000, they, they're supposed to declare it. Obviously, it's the equivalent of cash in that case, right? 
Um, so then supposing they, uh, I would say, how, how many of the entry points do we think come in through just a regular commercial flight where people are going to carry gold in amounts less of $10,000 but with sufficient back and forth travel to, to get it into the country and numbers that make sense for them? A specific number, I, I don't have, I can re we research that and get back to you on the specific numbers if we could find that. Uh, we do know that the, the gold is coming in through various sources, both legitimate and illegitimate. What's happening is in the source countries, it's being, being melted down and combined, and then it basically legitimizes it, launders the gold. Right. Uh, and many, very often it's coming in, and it's essentially legitimate commodity at that point, and it's basically a trade based right. So one route is the way they clean it up, and they launder it basically, and that is they take the gold, they either pass it through various entities until it's sort of the paper trail makes it look like it came from, you know, no one knows where it came from. The other is it's melted down and mixed with other sources, again, untraceable anyways, and then it comes in through the normal commercial transaction vias uh, for, for the importation. The other is, and it was one of the cases that they were highlighting to us in the past, is somebody actually arrives at the airport in Miami, gets through customs, and then drives down to some company who converts the gold into a cash transfer. Uh, and, and, and so what, what has happened with that route? in terms of bringing it in. Or do, do companies now, if, if I show up with a bunch of gold at one of these exchanges and they wire cash to me in exchange for the gold, does that transaction, does that wire now have to be reported? Well, it depends upon what you mean by, oh, sorry. It depends upon what it means to what you mean by being reported, because one thing with the reporting, and it's an issue, is gold is not considered a monetary instrument. It's considered a commodity. So the uh, paper trail is very minimal with the gold. So um, there is no financial reporting to track. So when it comes to the payments, I mean, that's what we have. Like in the case that you referenced, there was wire uh, money wire transfers, so that's what we were able to track. Right, you were able to track the wire, and when you track the wire, but does the wire, does it specify that this is turning a commodity into cash for the seller, and then that transaction is reported? Is that how that works? No, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. That's just, that wire is just that, it's a money, it's a money transfer. Without knowing that the source of it was Correct. sold $10,000 worth of gold in exchange for $10,000 cash wire. So you have to know who to look for. Absolutely. Because if you're just scouring transactions, um, that alone is not going to tip you off. No, I, that's correct. Um, and if the transactions are under $10,000, there's, no report, there's, there's no reporting, correct? There On the wiring be, side. Well, with gold, is it like um, was, was stated, uh, it's under, because it's a commodity, it's, it's handled a little differently, but right. even transactions, if, if you do enough of them under the $10,000 threshold, that's called structure. Some of the banking system, right? If you go to a bank, I think the threshold is 10000 as well. Any transaction over 10000 there has to be a record Correct. made. But um, so when a, if you go to one of these exchange houses that buy gold from people and you show up with $9,999 worth of gold and they give you cash for it, that's not, re that's not reported anywhere, Correct. Uh, I'll have to research that. I don't believe so. Right. Okay. Um, all right. Mr. Glenn, let me ask you, how can, um, what can we do to bolster the investigatory and enforcement capacity of the governments in the region uh, to go after uh, firms that are laundering? Uh, you know, we, we, ju we just talked about how some of this stuff is taken illegally mined and mixed in with the 
other stuff and, and the other gold and, and, and so forth, and then at that point sort of they've laundered it, basically, for lack of a better term. What's the best thing we can do? Obviously, in Venezuela, the government is actively participating in it, but in places like Peru and Colombia and El Salvador, others that want to be cooperative, what do they need? How can we help them to increase their, their capacity? And that's for anybody who has an idea, by the way, whether it's Ms. Juhaney or Ms. Filippetti, anybody. But I want to start with you, Mr. Glenn. Sure. Uh, thank you for the question. It's, a, it's an excellent question. We've actually had, um, I, I would say, considerable success with Peru uh, since they decided to attack this, uh, this problem head on. Uh, political will uh, from, from the president, from President Vizcarra, and his decision to, to take this problem on has been essential. Uh, in terms of our assistance and what we've been able to do to help and what we can do to help in other countries, I think is, is very, very good if we model it upon what we've been able to do in Peru. So we focus on, on building the capacity of investigative agencies uh, to, to be able to do the, the complex types of investigations. We do that through partnering with the FBI, with DHS, uh, with other U.S. agencies that have the expertise. We can bring those experts down uh, to Peru, to Colombia, to El Salvador, to whatever country, and share that uh, those best practices and expertise. Another essential part is making sure that they have uh, the laws that exist that um, that, that gives the governments the, the tools or the, the, the hammer uh, or the stick they need to, to do enforcement. So in many countries, asset uh, forfeiture laws do not exist, or they're weak, or they're unenforceable. Uh, so we work to uh, to help them reform those laws or to pass those laws in the first place, uh, and then train uh, again investigators, prosecutors, and judges, uh, so that they then have the confidence and ability to enact those laws. Uh, so going at it from from a from a regulatory and a, a criminal regulatory uh, perspective is uh, has been essential. It, it has proven successful uh, in Peru. Uh, there have been uh, a, a large uptick in the number of cases uh, that they've been able to success successfully prosecute. Uh, so uh, it, it's one of the many ways that we can go about it, but we know that that one is, uh, is successful. Could you just update us on the uh, status of the 2017 Memorandum of Understanding uh, with the Peruvians? Sure. No, um, the, the MOU with the Peruvians was, was essential in large part to get the U.S. government side uh, talking to each other uh, and in order. It then helped the Peruvian side as well to, uh, to, to get their side. Just like, just like us, there's multiple agencies within the government of Peru uh, that engage on this issue. Uh, that MOU that was signed uh, under the time that uh, Ambassador Nichols was there has been uh, continued under Ambassador Erz. We used that MOU uh, to, to model an MOU, a similar MOU in, in Colombia. Uh, and those have been the, the documents that we've used to, to strategically focus our assistance, uh, our law enforcement efforts, uh, and to help our partners do, uh, do their part. But the, those MOUs are focused not just on law enforcement, they're focused on looking at alternatives to, um, to, to formalizing uh, the mining sector, getting the mercury out, uh, and uh, it's a comprehensive approach. The, um, I'm sorry to, to go back to Mr. Lechleitner and, and Ms. Thompson for a second. I, I forgot to ask, what evidence do we have, or are we seeing the use of shell companies in the United States to help launder money associated with this? Yes, we are, quite a bit. Uh, there are, we've seen quite a bit of shell companies. Specifically, I can address some that are in, uh, you know, in Florida, South Florida, shell companies. Any in Maryland? No? no? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And very often, they, they go back to a residence, and uh, we, we've seen some commonalities with some B1, B2 holders uh, as well, but uh, shell companies are being utilized to uh, launder the money. 
And to add to that, sometimes it's not as simple as just a shell company. They often engage in what's called layering, where there will be multiple shell companies, so therefore making it even harder to track um, the documentation. Which is now a shameless plug for my bill, Senator Wyden, to uh, unmask some of these companies that are being used for these illicit purposes. Uh, Mr. Haney, let me ask about the, how is our the USAID programs that are helping minors and uh, they're targeting the artisanal minors. How, can you give us an update on those programs? Sure, and as you noted, uh, they're a critical component to the MOUs that were signed uh, both in 2017 with Peru and in 2018 with Colombia. Uh, Peru's recent, uh, USAID Peru's recent $23.9 million program is in direct support of that MOU, as is the ongoing Sincia project, uh, which as Mr. Glenn mentioned, helped to establish the first ever mercury testing facility in Peru. Um, it is also worked to promote innovative reforestation um, techniques. Uh, so we're really taking a holistic approach um, all the way from the formalization of the ASM sector, uh, looking at the link uh, to environmental degradation and uh, including looking at alternative livelihoods. So both in Peru and Colombia, we've had success through USAID's programmings. Senator Cardin. I want to just follow up with the conversation with our State Department people. I, I think there's a lesson to be learned in a positive way on how we have been able to go after trafficking and wildlife, particularly elephant tusks and rhino horns. Uh, we've had an all-out effort to deal with that issue, and we've gotten great cooperation from the countries involved. Not all, but most have, have worked with us. Uh, in order to really deal with these illegal uh, takings. And Congress gave additional resources and tools, and, and it was a priority in the State Department, a priority in each of our missions and the countries involved, and it made a difference. I think we could do the same in regards to this illicit mining. And I appreciate the fact that you've given us good examples of the relationship in Peru and what's been going on in Peru, but I, I think there needs to be a stronger attention given within the State Department instructions to our different missions and in the use of USAID's activities in these countries to make it clear that this is something that, that you need to check, have a checklist on in order to be able to maintain a positive relation with the United States. So uh, I can tell you that it really was the interest in the State Department, the interest in Congress that made a difference on wildlife. I don't think we've had the same visibility on illicit mining. And it, it is a, a, perhaps a, a much larger dollar problem for us than, than, uh, than the, 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 the rhino horns and elephant tusks, although that's a huge business, don't get me wrong. It's a, uh, so what is the game plan here beyond just one country effort? Um, political will is is essential. We can we can put in uh, we can put in hundreds of millions of dollars into this effort, and it will go nowhere unless political will exists. So how, it, the question really is, how do we generate political will? That's exactly right. I, I agree with you. You need political right. will, but it's amazing how political will changes when the United States pays attention to a problem. Yeah. So it, what what I don't want to encourage though is that that money and assistance isn't necessarily going to generate that will. Mm -hmm. 
what we've been able to do in Peru, the, the Peruvians and their Operation Mercury, it's a $300 million uh, investment on the government of Peru. The investment on the US side is remarkably small. It enables a lot of what they're able to do, uh, but it, it is their investment uh, that is making the difference there. Um, we, we will see similar results as we are seeing in Peru, in places like Colombia, and in some of the other Latin American countries, when that political will gets generated. How do we create that political will? Uh, under Ambassador Nichols at the time in Peru, uh, and continuing under Ambassador Urs, the constant attention from our embassy staff, these types of hearings, where an expression is being is being made by by the U.S. government, uh, you know, I, my my focus on it. I will be down in Peru and Colombia next week. Uh, in Colombia, we'll actually be specifically focused on on criminal uh, activity, uh, much of it mining uh, that that is being generated out of Venezuela. And how can we, as a as a region uh, in the Western Hemisphere, combat that illegal mining coming out of uh, out of Venezuela? So it's those kinds of engagement that help build that political will. Uh, and get countries to invest. I think a lot of it is is convincing them uh, of uh, uh, of the profitability of a legal system, uh, and a lot of that has to do with USAID's programming. Uh, and and so that that's the key. Obviously, the resource from from our end that we are able to 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 invest in in their capability and increase their their capacity is key. Uh, but I think the again the most important part is to get them to want to to address this issue. And we, we'll have an opportunity. There's a, the president has nominated a new ambassador to Peru, and uh, I believe she's from Florida, if I'm correct. I may, may be wrong about that. It's not from Maryland. <laughs> that I did notice. But uh, we will make sure that that's an issue that we bring up as importance, I, and I'm sure it would be on the administration's mind. I agree with you. You've got to create the, the interest, and it's more than money. But a relationship with the United States is multifaceted. And if this issue isn't on a top-tier issue, then it's of less political will locally. I understand it could be generated locally, but normally international pressure can make a difference in political will locally. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, and I have uh, just in final couple, maybe a comment and a question, and I want to focus specifically on Venezuela with, with you, Ms. Filippetti, and then, and then the, the broader group, if you have uh, comments on it as well. The interesting thing about illegal mining in Venezuela is, the first thing is the ecological disaster. Irrespective of the political outcome there, the ecological disaster is extraordinary and some of it irreversible. And much of that has been frankly underreported because the political disaster and the economic disaster has been so extraordinary. Um, and there's two things happening. One, frankly, is the regime has dipped heavily into their gold reserves just to sustain itself. You know, the central bank puts out these numbers, but if you do the math, they're lying, and they're probably under $10 billion in reserves as is, uh, which uh, they're not, and they probably will be lower here by the end of the year because one of the ways Maduro holds on to power is he does these Christmas bonuses, uh, you know, pork for Christmas and so forth. To, he won't even be able to meet the demand that exists, but he, he takes funds and sort of throws it into the street just to keep people calm over the holiday. And, um, and so they'll have to use reserves to pay for that. And so we've seen sort of... U.S. origin gold bullion from the 1940s winding up in the global market, stuff that was used during the world, Second World War to pay for oil that's now winding up out there in the global marketplace that's been openly reported in a number of, of sites. But the second piece, the one that's leading to the degradation uh, ecologically, is the illegal mining. And Ms. Felipetti, it's my understanding that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, what, what is the role that ELN and the dissident FARC 
movements that are within Venezuela playing in the mining regions. Some report that they have almost complete control and operate with impunity. Um, it, what, what's the assessment of the State Department as to the role they're playing in the illegal mining of occurring in Venezuela? Sure, thank you very much, Senator. Um, well, it's it's clear that, that the ELN and the FARC are very present in the mining arc. It really depends on what specific areas we're focusing on. There's, It's it's essentially entirely ungoverned lawless territory, so you, it's common that terrorist entities like the ELN and FARC will make themselves present there. In some cases, we are seeing them control the mines themselves. In other cases, we're seeing them control transit routes. We're seeing them take advantage of uh, refugees who are trying to flee and sort of um, uh, forcing them to work in the mines and to stay. Um, in other cases, we're seeing them um, have control over some armed weapons, which are enabling them to have control over medicinal supplies and things of that nature. So it really does depend, but uh, the truth is their presence in the region um, is, is one of the most dominant concerns of the State Department. Um, we have seen also how I spoke a little bit about the Maduro regime and its incompetence in gaining control over this problem. Um, what it realized was once it was not able to effectively combat illicit mining, it decided to capitalize off of it in order to get more resources that it realized were being deprived of it, largely because of U.S. and international sanctions on the petroleum industry. So we've now seen how there's a relationship between government officials, there's a relationship between um, the Army and the National Guard with some of these entities, whether it's the ELN and the FARC or whether it's the Pranes and Colectivos who are also present, uh, in order to really trade weapons, uh, control over some of the territories or cash uh, for support from, uh, from these territories. I think that's the key point because we're not talking about criminal operations in a country that doesn't want them there. Um, you know, we, we have criminal operations like that in other countries like uh, Peru or, or Colombia, but, but the governments by and large will want them out. There may be some localized corruption, but the government wants them out. In this particular case, they've basically been deputized and or the industry has been outsourced to them by the regime in exchange for those groups' support, cooperation, and a small fee or whatever that's, that's generating income, not just for the regime, but for the individuals in the regime. This is, an, this is one of the ways that Maduro keeps these people around him loyal, not to him, mm -hmm. but to that source of revenue that illicit, of illicit gain, correct? So this is where their cooperation. That's right, Senator. In some cases, they have tried to cut down on instances of illicit mining simply because they don't have uh, the relationships with those gangs. And so in that case, they do try to stop it so that they can generate those relationships. But absolutely, you know, and we've spoken a lot about um, how, how, to, how we need to generate political will. There are things that we can still do, even with a, a country that's under a regime that has no interest in working with us on combating it. You know, Venezuela is a really unique case because both Maduro is part of the problem, but also because we've sanctioned the entire gold sector for precisely the reasons that you've described, because it has enabled this patronage network that has kept him in power. Um, and so that actually gives us a number of unique tools that we can use in order to combat illicit mining inside Venezuela. Um, we've used some of them. I mean, diplomatic engagement, as Senator Cardin mentioned, has been critical with some of our allies. We've seen how the Bank of England has confiscated um, $550 million worth of Venezuelan origin gold. Um, we've also seen a, a decrease in the amount of gold flowing to Turkey, thanks to our engagement with Turkey. Um, there are other things that we've been working 
working on as well, sanctions and imposing a cost for dealing with this, uh, this sector has been effective as well. We'll continue to look at other companies that, are, that continue to operate with the Venezuelan mining sector. Um, and of course, looking at a transition scenario, this is where we can be most effective. This is when we can start to deploy some of the resources and tools that my colleagues spoke about that we're using in Peru and Colombia. It's also an opportunity for us to consider how we might be able to encourage more legal forms of mining so that we can um, get rid of the illicit uh, category within Venezuela. But of course, that would require a lot of security assistance as well, and it would be something that we can only consider once we have a democratic government in place. Well, in my, my last question is what you've described and what I've talked about often is you have a governmental agency, for lack of a better term, in the Maduro regime that basically cooperates with drug dealers for a fee. And they have taken, they have done drug seizures, but it's the drug seizures on the people that haven't paid them. If you pay them, they'll actually might even fly the drugs for you or, or transport it for you. The same is true in the illicit mining, that they, they may go after a group, but it's the group that isn't paying them. In essence, if you pay us, we let you operate. Um, how is that, and I, how is that any different from how organized crime operates when it takes over a neighborhood and cracks down on loan sharking or gambling among those crews that are not paying the, you know, the, the capo, the, the, the kickback that, that he's asking for? What you're basically describing is an organized crime effort dressed up uh, with that, that retains some elements of uh, a nation state government. But in essence, this is a organized crime ring that today not governs, but controls Venezuela. Senator, that's how we would describe it. We don't refer to the Maduro regime as a government. It is a, it is a corrupt criminal network. Um, it's corrupt and criminal in both, as you described. It's, it's involvement in the drug trade. It's also corrupt and criminal in, in its involvement in, in the mining industry. Not just gold. Again, we're talking about a lot of illicit sources of, of coltan, of diamonds, of coal even. And so um, I absolutely agree with your characterization of it as a, as a criminal network. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Good morning. Welcome to each of the witnesses. Thank you for your testimony. Uh, I've long worried that we're not paying nearly enough attention to the use of gold as a monetary instrument of illicit finance. And so today's hearing is valuable in that regard. I appreciate Chairman Rubio convening this hearing. Uh, earlier this year, I introduced a bill that would add trade in illicit precious metals as a class of transaction to be considered when making a Section 311 primary money laundering concern designation. This bill would allow the Treasury Department leverage uh, when determining whether a country or bank shall be designated a, a jurisdiction of primary laundering concern, money laundering concern, a label which has an obviously chilling effect. Um, I continue to urge the administration to consider this and similar measures, which would help address both the mining and the trade of illicit materials. On that issue, I'd like to ask each of you to talk a little bit about how illicit metals are being used by the Maduro regime and, and, and other anti-American regimes in South America. Specifically, the porous border between Venezuela and Colombia facilitates the smuggling of illegal gold with ties to guerrilla groups like the ELN and the FARC. How widespread is this challenge, and, and how can we support Colombia in monitoring and halting smuggling across its borders? I, 
I could, uh, Senator, thank you. I can speak very briefly to the um, to the Venezuela angle of it in terms of how prevalent it is. Um, you know, unfortunately, because we don't have a relationship with the Maduro regime, it can be difficult for us to gain exact numbers. We do know that approximately 91% of all of the mining in Venezuela is illicit, which is um, partially why our gold sanctions are so significant. It enables us to target, target the entire industry because either it is illicitly mined or it is in some way trying to be used by the Maduro regime in order to, to, to support itself um, by, by stealing from the natural resources of the Venezuelan people. Um, we know that the ELN and the FARC are present. We also know that there are a number of decentralized gangs, colectivos as you are aware, um, that are operating there. And it's really a vicious cycle because it is the, uh, the presence of these ungoverned spaces means that these terrorist and criminal groups come in. They are the ones who have control over the weapons. They're often in indigenous communities. It's, it's notable that the three highest uh, mining instances are in Bolivar, uh, Amazonas, and Zulia, which are, of course, also the most heavily and densely populated well, with indigenous communities in all of Venezuela. So their land is being stolen from them. Um, they are being uh, trafficked, both being uh, trafficked into the sex trade as well as forced into labor. Um, so it's a, it's a key problem and it affects Colombia as well because of course, as you noted, these are porous borders. The transit routes are often controlled by the ELN and the FARC and other, um, and other gangs. And so the, the health impacts and the, uh, the, the, um, the poisoning of the water and so on does not stop at Venezuela's borders. Uh, Colombia had recently indicated that most of its, um, I think it was 95% of all of the new malaria cases in, in um, foreign-born individuals who are in Colombia came from Venezuela. So we're seeing everything start to trickle out of, of Venezuela and I think it's critical that we focus both on regional approaches, which my colleagues can discuss in the surrounding countries where we have partnerships, but also some of the ideas that we posited on how to address the problem inside Venezuela even with a government that's not willing to cooperate with us. Well, let me follow up. How, how does the Maduro regime benefit from illegal mining carried out by groups like, like ELN and the FARC? Uh, and, and will disrupting the region's illegal mining networks undermine the stability of the Maduro regime? If so, how can we rally the region behind this goal? The answer to if disrupting it will will help um, destabilize Maduro, I think the answer is a, is a categorical yes. It's partially why we have implemented the gold sanctions. Um, he's going to keep looking at other sources of potential cash the more our sanctions take effect, particularly on the petroleum sector. And so we have seen him turn even more towards gold. We've seen him make announcements in both 2018 and this year um, indicating that this Arco Monero is a central piece of his strategic development. And of course, there are billions and billions of dollars worth of revenue that can be generated from the gold reserves inside Venezuela. Um, in terms of what we can do, again, we have very strong allies on the borders of Venezuela who have been working very closely um, with my colleagues in INL and elsewhere um, in order to combat illicit mining. Um, we have seen reports, though, of course, it's hard to determine um, the origin of some of the gold. So what comes out as Colombian gold may have actually been Venezuelan in origin. A few things that we can look at in the near term. So as I've pointed out, we have had some cooperation from our allies as we've come forward and indicated to them the sanctions risk, uh, risk of engaging with the Maduro regime. So we have seen a significant decrease. I think Turkey is an example of this. Um, between January and September of 2018, we saw Turkey purchase um, over $900 million worth of Venezuelan gold. That's more than the total trade between the two countries in the previous five years combined. Um, we engaged with them very directly. Our embassy engaged with them very directly, and we are not seeing that kind of engagement with the Venezuelan um, uh, gold industry 
industry uh, to that extent. And so that is something that we continue to engage with our partners on. Um, another thing for us to potentially look at is mercury. Mercury is one of the key causes of the ecological devastation, which also affects the health of the indigenous communities that are present. Um, if we can potentially consider ways to prevent or disrupt the amount of mercury that's going into Venezuela and being used by these small mining um, uh, individuals, that I think could potentially prevent the, the production of that gold from ever making it out of Venezuela in the first place. So that's an area for us to look into as well. All right, let's shift for a minute from, from gold uh, to uranium. Uh, in Latin America, there are two converging developments on uranium. First, legal mining has been on the rise of uranium across Latin America, and any illicit mining will undoubtedly increase alongside it. Second, as we have known for a decade now, Iran and Hezbollah are both engaged in efforts to mine strategic minerals for missile and, and nuclear programs across the region. Uh, a report recently published by Los Alamos National Laboratory about Hezbollah specifically called attention to the, quote, global pandemic of missing nuclear material and equipment. A couple of questions. What is your assessment of the risk Hezbollah or affiliated extremist organizations are trying to and can acquire illicit precious metals for their ballistic missiles and nuclear programs, especially illicitly mined and traded uranium? I could speak briefly to the Venezuela angle of this. So um, it's, we certainly know that there is an Iranian presence. Um, the extent to which the Iranians are directly involved in mining inside Venezuela, at least, is, a, is still a little unclear to us. Um, so we know that, that there's Iranians. We just don't know the extent to which they're operational in the, in the mining industry. Um, there are some deposits of thorium which is, and, and uranium inside Venezuela. So it's something that we watch incredibly closely. And the minute we have uh, further details, we're, we're happy to provide those to you. Very good. Thank you. Anything else? Thank you. Thank you all for your time. We appreciate it very much. I think this has been a useful hearing for us. We obviously, as you can see, there's interest in this topic, and it's, uh, it's important. It's not an easy one to address, but it's one we're trying to find ways to move forward that we can do both from a legislative perspective, but also from a public awareness perspective about this need. So again, I want to thank you all for being here. The record will remain open for 48 hours, and with that, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you.